Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 209. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avina Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we ask that you would be with us once again tonight as we embark on another study of um, both end-time events, eschatology, as well as uh, topics that deal with um, Trinitarian versus Unitarian belief systems. Help us, Lord, to appreciate the Word and the truths that are locked in there that are preserved for us by the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, we don't understand everything, Lord, but we rely on you. We trust in you. We know that um, you are faithful, and so we will continue to apply ourselves as students of the word. Continue to protect us and provide for us and raise us up during these last days, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Hashem Yeshua. Amen. My name is Aurobin Lyman Hana V, and this is uh, segment one of two segments, an hour and a half long study for live internet studies. Let's just jump right into um, eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. What you can see on your screen right now is just the um, updated uh, syllabus, as it were, the schedule of what topics we're going to be talking about. And I updated this just today, added two more topics to the list. You can see I struck through topic one and two because we're, those are behind us now. And we're currently in topic three, key scriptural passages. I added, um, uh, updated the books of Daniel uh, terminology and added Yeshua's Olivet Discourse for uh, topics four through um, seven. But as you can see, we're working our way towards basically topic 13 and 14 on that list there, Book of Revelation. That's basically what this study is about. We will go through the Book of Revelation, not verse by verse, but but primary topic by primary topic. So we're going to look at every chapter, but not every verse in the chapter per se. But we're building up to that by um, supplying uh, key scriptural passages and topics uh, related to that. So as you recall, we've been uh, looking at, let me blow that up a little bit. We've been looking at um, topics that are related to this idea of what the Bible calls the day of the Lord which is a predominant theme in end-time uh, studies. The Day of the Lord is this intense um, kind of tribulation-slash-wrath uh, time period that's going to be poured on the planet Earth. And whether you say it's only three and a half years or a full seven years or even half of that, maybe half of the three and a half years, depends, right? There's some, there's some um, differences either way. But the concept of the idea that there's going to be a time of persecution ahead for not just Jewish people, national Israel, but a time of persecution for the church so that refinement can take place for, for both groups. Um, many eschatology uh, teachers and students agree that something down, something future is on the way. The preterist camp, the full preterists, maybe they aren't really looking for something heavy uh, to hit the scene later on. Again, the full full preterist to believe that maybe everything really heavy was already dumped on on planet Earth uh, two thousand years ago, around seventy A.D. and 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 the following. But partial preterism at least allows for uh, a good healthy part that it took place earlier and some future stuff. So the reason we're um, bringing in these um, script, scriptural passages like we're doing, we're working our way through passages out of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and some New Testament passages that we're going to look at tonight. The reason we're doing that is because seen through the lens of what's going to take place on planet Earth, it's going to affect every man, woman, boy, and girl on planet Earth, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish. And so from a biblical perspective, worldview, um, refinement has to take place both within national Israel and within the church, right, predominant Gentile church. And because of refinement, it's going to take place on both levels, right? Both aspects, the binary quality of refinement 
that's uh, 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 prophesied in the scripture, we have to read through copious amounts of Old Testament prophecies that are Israel-facing, right? Their language is directly addressing Israel, national Israel. And then when we get to the apostolic scriptures, there is a healthy amount of um, passages that have the Gentile Christian church in view. And we'll kind of see how that all fits together. So that's kind of what we call the day of the Lord uh, concept. So in this chart that you can see on my screen right now, uh, this is my own uh, chart, my own making. Um, not all of the, let me blow that up a little bit. Not all of the uh, passages are hit. I just kind of skim through selectively. Um, but we will finish the Tanakh passages tonight. And if I can do so and just read, we'll even finish the Apostolic Scriptures. So that next week, let me just tell you, go back to that schedule. So that I'm aiming to begin topic four starting next week. I might not reach it. We'll see what happens. But if 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 I don't do it tonight, if we don't start it next week, we'll do the week after. But we'll start looking at the book of Daniel, uh, prophecies near and far. Um, the book of Daniel is kind of the anchor for the book of Revelation study because of some of the details that are given to Daniel that were not given to any other prophet in the Old Testament time period. Uh, amazing that God would pour all of that into Daniel. And then, even so, it's so cryptic. It's so sparse. It's not... Um, a lot of information there it would have been great if there would just been chapter after chapter like the book of Isaiah, you know, 66 chapters of the book of Daniel with all the details about the end times. But no, God smashes it all into like a few chapters and a few verses, but we got to work with it. So let's jump right into it. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Uh, uh, the theme of God's going to be refining Israel. There's this twin theme that is predominant in the, in the um, um, prophets that gets carried over into the apostolic scriptures that then gets carried into the book of Revelation. And the theme is if, I don't want you to miss this, the idea that judgment is coming, but then restoration follows. It's that simple. God judges and then he restores. And the purpose of judgment is to separate that which is um, uh, worthless from that which is worthwhile. Right, God has to judge his people and judge wickedness and judge idolatry and fornication and spiritual wickedness and, and uh, um, you know, um, so, so, social injustice. God has to judge that no matter if you're Israel or the nations. God has to judge that because he's a, he's, he's a God of justice. But at the same God, time, he's a God of mercy, which means he usually preserves a remnant of those whom he's judging and saves that remnant to be brought back into a place of restoration and rebuilding and um, uh, times of refreshing, things like that. So that's the theme that you have to look for when you're reading the Old Testament prophecies. Of course, we're already aware that there's this idea of the exile of Israel in the Old Testament is the um, kind of the type and shadow, the catalyst, the the picture, the, the um, blueprint, as it were, for God to judge Israel's wickedness, but then bring restoration. And then at the same time, judge the, the surrounding nations for, for the way they mistreated Israel, right? Um, so the Babylonian exile in the Old Testament becomes the kind of the motif of judging wicked systems, but at the same time, judging Israel for being involved in that wickedness and then bringing her through that, although she's severely crippled afterwards, right? I mean, there's there's a significant number of Israelites who are destroyed in the process because they're swept up in the wickedness. They do not repent. But God 
puts it in the heart of the remnant to turn back to him and to confess their sins and to be reconciled to their God, and then God brings them into blessing. So that's the bit, the big picture that's seen through the lens of the exile of Babylon. And in that sense, like we talked about this tale of two cities, Babylon versus Jerusalem, the wicked systems of the earth are personified by the name of the city Babylon. Not necessarily that Babylon is the only one um, engaged in idolatry and wickedness and, and, and murdering and all that stuff. You know, she's not the only wicked um, pagan nation on the earth that God is going to judge. Ultimately, all the nations of the earth will suffer some form of judgment and persecution um, at the hand of God himself because of their wickedness. But ba- Babylon becomes the kind of the poster child for that uh, judgment. At, on the flip side of that, Israel becomes the um, personification of the righteousness that God redeems to himself. So Jerusalem becomes that poster child when it comes to cities. So that's why we say a tale of two cities, Babylon versus Jerusalem. This kind of um, big city smackdown at the end of the age. All right, so look at Jeremiah 16. <clears throat> We've been looking at this uh, exile of Israel. And with a view towards the future persecution that's going to come upon Israel based on her wickedness. Again, she's dabbling in idolatry. She's dabbling in wickedness. She's dabbling in in unfaithfulness. Her rejection of Messiah is going to put her in a place where she's going to have to be um, uh, set aside and judged again by God. And yet there will be restoration. So let me not belabor the point. In Jeremiah 16, we can even see it in the... um, Headings of the titles that your Bibles give you. This is the NASB that I'm using, but distress is foretold, right, in this uh, chapter of Jeremiah 16. But when I scroll down, God will restore them, right? See how that is? So it's kind of nice. If you were to read verses 1 through uh, 13, you'll you'll see that God is talking about in the language is Jeremiah is prophesying about the seven years of exile and destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and how that there will be famine and and perishing by the sword and lots of dead bodies and and this is Israel um for this is what the Lord says concerning the sons and daughters uh born in this place and concerning their mothers who gave birth to them um and their fathers who fathered them in this land Verse 4, they will die of deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried. They will be like dung on the surface of the ground. They will perish by sword and famine, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the sky and the animals of the earth. This is judgment against God's people, Um, right? Uh, Judgment because they broke faith with God. They broke commandment-keeping with God. They they, uh, allowed um, um, murderous um blood to be uh, shed on their land and they uh played the harlot with the the idol idols idolatrous nations around them so this is the judgment side of the coin flip side right to a coin with two sides the first side judgment the flip the coin over and god says starting in verse 14 therefore behold the days are coming right whenever you see these phrases like in the prophets the days are coming or behold um the day will come or it uses the word day typically in there um something to that effect then it's a forward facing prophecy that has two aspects i'll put a little graphic on the screen for the for those of you who are not going to be who are not in the live study right now but post-production graphic the whole prophetic telescoping aspect of near and far a prophecy that's given to israel by a prophet of their day with a near-term 
um, fulfillment, meaning the, the fulfillment is right around the corner, perhaps within a generation, right? In Jeremiah's aspect, this would be like within 70 years after the exile. So that's what we mean by near term or now. You can say near or now, either one works. And so prophecy has this, this um, binary quality to it as well, a telescoping. Some prophecies are near. They're going to take place right around the corner from when the prophet spoke the words or wrote them down. And that's good news for the generation living during that time because it, it instills in them a sense of hope. At the same time, on the larger scale, there's this far aspect to the prophecy or not yet. So we have near far, near slash far, and we have now slash not yet. They both capture the same concept. The idea that God can recycle the prophecy, as it were, use the same language that's written down once and yet apply it to a future generation as well as a current generation, a contemporary generation. Sometimes the language is only future, and sometimes the language is only contemporary or current or near. Uh, there are usually details given in the prophecy. We'll find this out when we turn to the book of Daniel, either next week or the week following. But there are times when the prophecy is definitely only applicable from uh, the way prophecy works. Generally speaking, it's only applicable once or twice, but not multiple times, so that it's either only a near and a far, and then that's it, or it's only a near and that's it, or it's only a far and that's it. And the language will indicate. So when you know when it talks about, for instance, the Messiah, a prophecy that talks about he was bruised for our transgressions, he was he was uh, wounded for our iniquities, bruised for our transgressions, or wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Right, the Isaiah fifty three prophecies that were future from the time when Isaiah wrote them. Even though the language sounds like it was past since he was, it's it's what we might call the prophetic future. Um, but it was we we as Christians know that these are prophecies that were concerning the future Messiah to come into Israel, right? The fact that Isaiah fifty three, this is an example I'm giving you. The fact that Isaiah three fifty three foretold a time when the Messiah would be broken and bruised and crushed by God for the iniquity of not just his people but the iniquity of all humanity. These are prophecies that foretold of the death and suffering of Messiah on the cross. But guess what? They only happened once. There's no near and far to them. Understand what I'm saying? There's no now and not yet. Those prophecies about the, about the suffering Messiah, those are designed to be used only once. They're not recyclable. There's not going to come a day when Messiah suffers again. He suffered only once on the cross. He will not suffer again. Therefore, we must with certainty understand that those prophecies are not recyclable. They will not be reused by God. They're not going to, they're not, we, we don't have a pattern in scripture that says, is it possible that this prophecy could apply again? when messiah comes again is there a second messiah that's going to come who's going to suffer again no there's only one messiah and he's only going to suffer once that's the point i'm trying to make with with similar um accuracy there are other prophecies in the bible that are designed to only be used once in fact my i'm under, under the understanding that the general default position is that prophecies are only supposed to be used once either in a near and then a far but even still that's a one-time application meaning they they have a fulfillment once and then again in the future and then that's it if you're not if you're being confused by the word once there i hope you're not i mean the language is written down once by the prophet he doesn't say okay here's the near aspect and then here's the far he doesn't say that in his prophecy usually just describe something and then the the details the context tells us whether it's the near plus the far or only the near and only the far this is going to go a long way towards better understanding uh, prophetic 
passages that have been fulfilled historically that either had a near short-term kind of limited fulfillment with a still yet future far-term fulfillment versus some aspects that have no near and far. They only have a near and no far, or they only have a far and not a near. Understand? So three ways to look at prophecy. One, they have a near and a far. Two, they have a near only and not a far, right? A near exclusively. And three, they have a far exclusively. So those are the three best ways to look at prophecies. Don't create a fourth one where nearly everything has both a near and a far and, and is applied multiple times over and over and over again, like history keeps repeating itself over and over again. That's kind of a weak way to look at prophecy, although ideally there are themes that are repeated throughout history, right? The, the rise and fall of wickedness, the rise and fall of righteousness and revivals, uh, the ups and downs of God's people, right? Um, where, where we go through cycles of... Um, and phases of of um, uh, obedience and disobedience, obedience. So those are kind of lessons that are timeless that are repeated by humanity down through his 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 time frame. But the, we're talking about prophecy. We're not just talking about concepts or or themes uh, that the Bible portrays. We're talking specifically about prophecy that's written down by God to help us understand an historical event that uh, happens either once or twice, and that's it. Okay. Didn't mean to chase that rabbit trail, but it was necessary. All right, so Jeremiah 16. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Verse 15, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from the lands where he had banished them, for I'll restore them to their land, which I gave to their forefathers. This is the beginning of the theme known as the greater exodus that many um, messianic groups uh, um like to teach, and we'll talk about that in a future um, study, not next week and not the week after, but it's it's in the uh, works. I, I have it on, the, on my schedule. When we talk about rapture themes, I'll bring in this greater Exodus concept. But it's introduced right here in Jeremiah 16. But I only brought it up now as kind of a teaser to let you know that um, it's a perspective that's held by many in um, Messianic circles, congregations that are uh, Jewish-leaning and Jewish-flavored. It isn't taught a lot in Christian circles just because it seems to be so relevant to people who are more Hebraically oriented. But this idea of a greater exodus, right? The first exodus out of Egypt in the book of Exodus itself, right? The Passover stories and all that stuff. And now we have this greater exodus, which was partially fulfilled when God brought Israel back from the exile. So it was partially fulfilled then, and yet Israel would suffer another exile, right? At the hands of the Romans in the first century, when they got kicked out of Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed, and they got exiled and kicked out of the land again. So this is why we say it's a partial fulfillment, because what good is it God? What good is it for God to tell Israel, hey, behold, the days are coming when I'm going to restore you in, into your own land that I gave to your forefathers. Oh, but by the way, you're going to get exiled again, okay? That's, that's, a, that's a very dis- discouraging prophecy. Um, so we know that it's partially fulfilled because there's going to be another um, case where um, Israel is going to be in a, in a place where she needs to be rescued by God because she's going to be under the hands of her pressures, oppressor. And this will be a future uh, um, deliverance that is probably uh, during the times of the uh, last seven years of um, intense persecution here on planet Earth. Jumping to the very next um, chapter on my list here, uh, liberation from captivity is promised in Jeremiah chapter 30. And so again, the theme of the idea that 
Captivity is going to be followed by liberation. The two themes are right there in the um, the dual themes are right there in the in the the chapter heading: liberation from captivity. And the reason I'm bringing this theme up is because it's going to help us when we look at these two cities, this this um, big city smackdown between um, Babylon and Jerusalem at the end of the age in the Book of Revelation. We're going to find that it's only God's people that are liberated. It's only those whom God places his name and his seal and has chosen to redeem and those who are repentant and those who um, uh, confess their sins and embrace God and his Messiah. Those are the ones who are going to be liberated and ultimately redeemed and restored. Everyone else is labeled as sinners, wicked, and they are destroyed. And so this is going to go a long way towards figuring out who's who in the end time scenarios and whose side you need to be on when it comes to do you want to be part of those who are liberated and redeemed and rescued, right? Ultimately saved and brought into the kingdom of God, or do you want to cast your lot with the wicked and the unrighteous and perish and go off into destruction, right? Your choice, choose life or choose death, right? So that's basically the two two choices that are before all humanity. So we see this theme in Jeremiah 30. And when I scroll to the very end of the um, chapter, we can see, as we get down to verse 18, restoration of Jacob. Again, we don't find in the um, prophets any language that is relegated to, you ready for this? The restoration of Babylon. Yeah, we don't find that. Why don't we find that? Because Babylon is portrayed, just like Egypt in the Bible, as a type and shadow of a wicked beast system that the adversary has kind of um, usurped and taken over and is utilizing as his his own wicked tool to persecute the righteous people of God, i.e. the Jerusalems of the world. Again, it's the uh, big city smackdown, Jerusalem versus Babylon, Babylon versus Jerusalem. Babylon represents those wicked beast systems that we're going to read about in the book of Daniel, maybe next week or the week after, and that we're certainly going to be reading about in the book of Revelation in time. The Antichrist is going to be leading... um, Uh, coalitions of nations against the peoples of God to persecute the people of God, to bring oppression, to ultimately establish his own um, man's uh, satanically inspired and led uh, systems to try and establish his own place on the earth and usurp God's authority, right, to oust uh, the genuine Christ. The Antichrist is going to be in place of and against the genuine Christ. So we're talking about Babylon, as viewed through the lens of the prophets and God's perspective, is that there isn't a restoration promise for them. Why? Because Babylon um, personifies wickedness and personifies evil, just like Egypt is also in that type and shadow of persona. That's not to say that literal Egypt or literal Babylon can't have people in it that are saved. They absolutely could. But as on the whole, the picture, the... the, the, um, um, the the type and shadow, the uh, uh, a lesson that's being portrayed by us in the Bible is that wickedness is uh, personified by Babylon and Egypt and those other n- nations that surround Israel, and Jerusalem and Zion uh, are are the portrayal of the um, righteousness and goodness and things like that. So it's a restoration of Jacob. There are no headings of the Bible in your Bibles that are going to say restoration of Egypt or restoration of. Canaan or restoration of 
of the Philistines or restoration of, of Babylonia or restoration, something like that. Typically, you're not going to find it. In fact, I can't find any. Um, the themes are typically restoration of Jacob, restoration of Zion, uh, things like that. When we scroll down to the very bottom of this um, uh, chapter, um, the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. It even tells us, again, it uses those language of latter days. So when you're reading through these uh, uh, passages, for instance, I skipped over verse 23, but I should have read it. Behold, the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. These are future facing passages that on the near aspect, God poured out judgment on Babylon for um, exiling Jerusalem. And we're talking about the 5th and 6th century Neo-Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar headed up. God judged Babylon then by allowing the Medes and the Persians to um, overthrow them. And we're going to read about that when we start getting into the book of Daniel and reading about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue and Daniel's visions of the four beasts. Babylon was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. And that was God's way of judging Babylon in one sense for the way she treated Israel. And for in another sense, because she was full of wickedness herself and was ripe for judgment. But on the other hand, the judgment that's described in the prophets isn't total. All of the language has not been exhausted on Babylon in terms of judgment, which tells us that there's a future uh, Babylon that's going to exist someday, whether it's a literal Babylon in the city or it's a personification of Babylon in uh, as is represented by other cities that don't necessarily have the name Babylon, but personify the same wickedness. In other words, we're talking about spiritual entities, spiritual wickedness, right? Not necessarily that it has to be the same geographical location on planet Earth where ancient Babylon once stood. But the point I'm trying to make is the language of the prophecies that we read Help us to understand that there's a future judgment that's coming that will be total. It'll be final. And when we get to the book of Revelation, this will be spelled out, particularly in the latter parts of Revelation, uh, like chapter 17, 18, 19, things like that. All right, so moving straight from Jeremiah 30, where it talks about the day of the Lord and the wrath that's going to go out and, and uh, the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back, right? We jump right from that into Jeremiah 31. Israel's mourning turned to joy at that time. What time? The time we just read about in Jeremiah 30. Remember, the prophecies were written originally without these chapter breaks and verse breaks. So we're meant to read the prophecies back to back, kind of page by page. So that's why I just did a seamless um, um, transition from chapter 31 in chapter 30 into the verse chapter 31 as if they were still put together on Jeremiah's scroll because originally they were. At that time, what time? The time near the times of judgment or the day of the Lord. Declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survived the sword and found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him long ago saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you out with kindness. I will build you again and you will be rebuilt. Notice that language of being rebuilding and restoration, right? And forgiveness and um, mercy being poured out is only to those whom God is in covenant with. This means personally, on the personal level, it's if you have a relationship with Yeshua. But nationally, we see this being poured out to Israel only. In other words, this language is not poured out to Babylon, to the Babylons of this world or the Egypts of this world or things like that, the evil beast systems that Satan controls 
and has been controlling down to the ages and utilizing those beast systems to um, persecute Israel or her temple or the Jewish people or uh, the law of God or or the Messiah, you know, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, um, and then uh, the seventh empire and then the eighth empire, if you follow that uh, language from Daniel, those beast empires all have something in common. They hate God. They hate God's Messiah. They hate God's righteous ways, meaning his laws, his Torah. They hate God's people, God's city, God's temple, God's commandments. They hate all that is, and when I say they, it's because they are being controlled by the beast himself, which is ultimately Satan. And so this, this idea in Jeremiah 31 that God says, I will build you again, that language is reserved for God's people on the natural level. That's Israel and Zion and Jerusalem. On the spiritual level, this is the church or those who are in relationship with God if you genuinely have a relationship with Yeshua. So um, that language is uh, helpful because Jeremiah 31, as many of you know, if I scroll all the way down, keep scrolling to verse 31. Uh, verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, because the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of mankind and the seed of animals, and just as I've watched over them to uproot them, right, the, the, the exile and the ultimate uh, tribulation that's coming, tear them down, ruin, destroy, and bring disaster on them, so I will watch over them to build and to plant them, declares the Lord. Notice those dual themes again in both the prophets and in what we're going to be reading about when we get to the New Testament and book of Revelation. The idea of there's judgment exile, punishment, but then there's restoration. On the near term, this was Israel going into exile in the 5th, 6th centuries. Ultimately, it started with the Assyrian exile in the 720s, uh, but then mere, nearly 200 years later, Babylon came and, and uh, exiled Judah. So, judgment took place for God's people. She was exiled. Jerusalem was destroyed, plowed under. The temple was destroyed, etc., etc., but God promises to restore in those days, I'm sorry, let me jump down to verse 31, the familiar passage that's the longest single-running quote from the Old Testament into the New, in the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 and chapter 10 of Hebrews. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There are no languages that show up in the Tanakh anywhere that God says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Babylon and with the house of Israel, I'm sorry, Egypt, and the house of Edom and with the house of of um of, you know, fill in the blank for whatever beast system that uh, you can think of at the moment. God doesn't make renewed covenants or new covenants with those wicked beast systems. Why? Because he's not in covenant with them to begin with. Can those people groups be saved if they turn from their wickedness and turn to God and trust in his Messiah? Absolutely. Salvation and the gospel is open to everyone, right? For God so loved the entire world, not just Israel only. But the point we're trying to make is that there's this exclusive covenant relationship that God makes with his bride based on the covenants that he established with the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this language is what the, the prophets pick up on. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So that's the restoration. Why is that important? Again, when we get to the book of Revelation, we're trying to ascertain who's who, who are God's people and who are the wicked systems. Right? Who's Babylon and who's Jerusalem? And which side do you want to be on? Which city do you want to associate with? It's helpful that these themes that we're already reading about that are already dominant, they're not even side issues. They're dominant. They pervade the Tanakh. If you're not getting anything from this uh, perspective that we're looking through the Old Testament, uh, please don't miss this, right? God has a covenant with his people. On the natural level, this means Israel, but on the spiritual level, this means the church. Again, this does not mean that every single Israelite is going to be saved spiritually. 
It just means they are the type and shadow of the covenant people group of God. Sadly, two-thirds of them are going to go through the tribulation and lose their lives, as far as I can ascertain. Um, and that's God's people, God's people that God's allowing Satan to destroy and to kill and to uh, mur murder and to martyr. So, um, and it's for, again, for the purpose of refining that one-third and bringing them through the fire, through the testing, so that they can be brought to their knees and meet their Messiah and confess him as Lord, and then move, go on into the millennial kingdom and, and start that whole program up. So that's Jeremiah 31, right? A familiar passage. Let's keep moving on. In Zephaniah, we have prophecies that talk again about the um, exile and the punishment that's about to befall Israel because of her wickedness, because of her idolatry, because of her playing the harlot. She is the primary harlot that's described in the Old Testament because she is the only bride of God that's described in the Old Testament. So it's coincidental language when we talk about the harlotry language of Israel coincides with the um, bridal language of Israel. That's the coincidence between the two. That's not meant to make us think that Israel is the only harlot. Indeed, the wicked surrounding nations, we're going to see this when we turn to the New Testament here shortly, the surrounding nations and indeed all the nations of the earth at the end of the day, age, age are swept up in idolatry, even though they're not the bride of God, even though they're not uh, typified in the Old Testament as the people of God. They're still swept up at the end of the day in the wickedness, in the wicked idolatrous systems and the false religions and all of the uh, murder and the, uh, the, 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 um, the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the intense, um, was, I'm losing term terminology here. All of the, uh, um, a love for, for money and all of the, um, 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 you know, everything that goes along with that whole, um, let's just, uh, live for today system. Um, you know, I'm going to be my own person. Uh, what we, what we call, um, man's, uh, man's theology, man's religion, um, secular humanism and, um, you know, uh, atheism and, uh, uh, all of the old, all of that whole liberal perspective where, you know, uh, all, every, every, anything goes, you know, let's just uh, do it your own way. Um, you know, be your own man, be your own God. Uh, you're, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the Buddha. You're the Christ. You're, you're the Muhammad. You're, you know, you're the, you're, you're, you are your own savior. Uh, you know, the whole new age system and all false religions that are tied into that and stuff. The whole system of wickedness is going to be judged. And we're going to see this here in a moment. But woe to Jerusalem and the nations. Woe to Jerusalem and the nations. And so um, God judges anyone who's wicked, but he restores his people. He restores those who are in covenant relationship with them. Again, on the natural level, this is typified by Israel, right, who remains despite her judgments right there are there are wicked nations in the earth that have basically gone out of existence right you go back into the old testament uh you know the five books of moses and you read about all those ites right the hittites the jebusites jebusites the the girgashites the the all these other ites that joshua had to deal with when he went into the land of canaan and many of those ites don't exist anymore why they passed on into obscurity why because they were not in covenant relationship with god there's no more mention of these people groups they've been swallowed up into the sands of history right or they got assimilated into other groups and there's no more of them god judges them right the sodomites you ever met a sodomite today i mean like as in someone from sodom ever met a um a gomorite a gomorite gomorite i don't even know how you would say that someone from sodom and gomorrah as in, that was their birthplace. 
Why? No, you haven't met these people. Why? Because God judged that wicked city, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he turned it into a uh, smoking ash heap. And it basically remains that way to this day. And so that's that's the way we are to read these prophecies. God judges wicked systems, and in some cases he wipes them off the map. But Israel will not be wiped out. Ultimately, she'll be judged. Lots of her will be, lots of, lots of inhabitants within her will die and perish at the sword at God's judgment. But ultimately, God will restore those whom he's preserved and uh, he will not uh, wipe them out completely because he made covenant promises to them. So, woe to Jerusalem and the nations. We see that in the book of Zephaniah. And so, basically, the entire book of Zephaniah is about the day of the Lord. But when you scroll down to verse 12 of Zephaniah 3, a remnant of Israel, but I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Again, that remnant language is for Israel exclusively. He he doesn't leave remnants of the nations because of the covenant relationship that he has with them. There's no covenant relationship with them. They must find their place among Israel if they want to be protected and restored and blessed in any sort of way. That's why they are grafted into Israel at at those levels. That's why they become a part of the people of God and they're given the label Israel. And that's the paradigm that we see over and over again. When God rescued Israel out of Egypt and there were a bunch of mixed multitude peoples that left Egypt that day, you know, a lot of Egyptians that placed their trust in Moses instead of Pharaoh and a lot of other pe- people groups that were subjugated by the Pharaohs of that day, they get they got out of Egypt when the when the time came, right? They 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 saw the scorecard, you know, the 10 plagues, and they're like, you know, Moses 10, Pharaoh 0. Okay, let's go with Moses, right? Or let's go with God. So they got out of Egypt that day when the when the Exodus took place. But they all gathered at the foot of Sinai, this mixed multitude, and then God started speaking to them collectively as Israel. Did they convert? Well, the rabbis say they did, but I don't believe they did. I don't believe they converted and became Jewish. Instead, it's the type and shadow, the paradigm of people being brought into the people of God by their faith in God. They still retain their national identification as someone from the surrounding nations coming into the nation of Israel ethnically, but spiritually speaking or covenantally speaking, they take on the label of Israel as a people group. And thus the same is true today. If you're if you name the name of Yeshua as Messiah, then spiritually speaking, you're you're part of the spiritual um nation of God, the spiritual nation of Israel. You're spiritual Israelites, you're spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. Abraham is your father. Don't believe me, you can just go ask Paul, right? He tells us in Romans chapter three and Galatians chapter four that Abraham is your papa, if you believe in in Yeshua. So Um, because of that, you're grafted into Israel. Read Romans chapter 11 all over again. You're the spiritual people of Israel. You don't have to be ethnically Jewish to be part of the spiritual people of Israel. So the remnant of Israel is that group of people who are preserved by God. Um, God alone preserves and protects them and ultimately restores and continues to rebuild the people from there. So that's Zephaniah chapter 3. Now, with the next 20 minutes in front of us, Let's continue to, well, we've got one more Old Testament book, sorry. Zechariah 14 is one classic Old Testament prophetic book that talks about the um, God protecting Israel. And the language that's in this final chapter of Zechariah is almost universally understood to be eschatological, end time. In other words, there's no preterist uh, perspective here in this particular prophecy. This doesn't seem to have been fulfilled at some time in, in historic past because the language doesn't allow it. And now again, 
maybe a full preterist out there listening to this commentary, watching this video is going to say, no, I disagree with you, Ariel. Um, all of this Zechariah 14 language was fulfilled sometime, and he's going to quote X amount of um, uh, historical occurrence or whatever. Okay, yeah, he's probably going to be that way. But um, even most contemporary rabbis agree that this is all future-facing language. And certainly Christians who name the name of Yeshua believe that the language here, when when Zechariah talks about the feet of God standing on Mount all on the Mount of Olives is actually Yeshua standing there. If not, it's anthropomorphic language talking about God himself. But notice, I'll, I won't read all of this, but just a few verses. Behold, a day is coming. Again, notice the language. Behold, a day is coming. That language is typically hinting at and cluing you into the fact that this is eschatological day of the Lord, future uh, from the time period of the prophet with without necessarily a near uh, time um, fulfillment such as 70 AD. Rather, instead, it's more far-facing. Although, although, let me make this this um, a clarifier. The day of the Lord language that shows up in the Old Testament that we've been looking at and, and pouring through, that we're going to finish up with tonight, the day of the Lord language has its limited application in whatever exile takes place at Israel's historical um, uh, place on the, on the timeline. So whether that had been would have been Babylon exile or, or Assyrian exile or Babylonian exile or the Roman exile in the first century, all of those have day of the Lord aspects that are borrowed from the prophets that the prophecies could be applied to because we're talking about judgment, exile, destruction of Jerusalem language, all that type of thing. And that's day of the Lord language as well. Um, but the point I'm trying to bring up is that if you continue to follow through with all the day of the Lord language and notice how it talks about the finality of the judgment against the nations and the finality of the, of the judgment against Israel, meaning the final judgment, and then the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, i.e. an age where God will usher in, um, a kingdom of righteousness that his, his son is going to um, rule over, right? Daniel chapter seven and things like that. Um, then we begin to realize that the day of the Lord is describing an event in the future that is a culmination. It's designed to be a fullness. The day of the Lord theme is not designed to be some um, um, reusable, recyclable prophecy that's just used over and over and over again in every generation where Israel finds herself in playing time out. That's not the way the word, the phrase day of the Lord is meant to be understood. The day of the Lord is meant to be just that. Not a literal day, but an, an epoch, a time period, an, an age a culmination, a fullness at the end of the age, a final judgment, a um, a fullness, a zenith, a filling up, a a, a harvest, a um, a reaping, a um, um, a, a final judgment. That's what Day of the Lord language is designed to be understood at. Don't think of the Day of the Lord as something that's just recyclable over and over again. Whenever Israel finds herself. Uh, being punished by God. For instance, was the Holocaust a day of the Lord judgment by God? Well, it was definitely a cruel punishment um, at the hands of a, of a beast-type nation, right? The Nazi regime and Hitler and all of that stuff. But the point I'm trying to make is that it doesn't seem to fulfill and exhaust all of the day of the Lord language that we read about and that we're indeed going to be read, reading about in the um, book of Revelation soon. So, um, the day of the Lord, a day is coming when the spoils will be taken from you and divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped in half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be eliminated from the city. 
So we're talking about a destruction of Jerusalem, a siege, a besieging, an attack on Jerusalem from surrounding nations. Is it the nations that immediately surround Israel, right? Like Egypt and, and Jordan and um, um, and Turkey and Iraq and, and Saudi Arabia and, and uh, Lebanon? And, and is it those immediate uh, cities that surround Jerusalem that are like on the same land mass as Israel? In some cases, it does describe those. Other times, it talks about the surrounding nation. It talks the language is as if all the nations of the world are gathered against Israel. Like right, even like people who are not people who are on other continents are are going to war against Israel. Right. Uh, sometimes that's the language that's being described. So um, the point being is that if we look at this as a future prophecy, notice that God fights for Israel. He stands on. Um, Jerusalem. He stands on the Mount of Olives, right? His feet uh, will stand on the Mount of Olives, verse 4. Has that ever happened yet? Not physically, not literally. So we can see this language, if we're going to take it literal, that this must be a future-facing prophecy that Christians would say, if we're talking about the feet of God, we're talking about Yeshua, unless we're talking about a, a, an extreme theophany again. But nevertheless, uh, I, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, right? And blah, blah, blah. And we scroll down, and it talks about... Um, God will be king over all, the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day the Lord will be the only one, his name the only one. I'll change the land, uh, the land will change into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place from the far gate to the corner gate, right? People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will live in, in um, uh, security. And then the language that, go, that follows from 12 to the end of the chapter, all the way to the very end, is... It cannot possibly be something that's happened historically because it talks about a temple and it talks about people coming coming up and, and worshiping at the the the, the, uh, uh, the Feast of Boots. And if they don't come up, there'll be no rain. Um, partially fulfilled in the first century when the temple was rebuilt from Zechariah's perspective, all people did stream into Jerusalem year after year, especially during uh, the festivals, and um, participated in the feast to some degree. But the punishments that were described in this chapter weren't meted out the way that they are described here. Um, so we can see this as future-facing in its in its total fulfillment. All right, let's turn in the last 15 minutes now to the um, uh, Apostolic Scriptures. We're going to begin to develop this theme that's going to show up predominantly in the book of Matthew and in the Thessalonian epistles by Paul. And so I put this little graphic on your screen, this little chart about the coming of the Lord known as the parousia. The word parousia, uh, some people say parousia, but I say parousia. The parousia literally means, or is literally translated from the Greek as the presence, right? The presence. And it describes maybe a time period when the king would visit a city. He would go from his throne room and go out to visit his subjects, and he would enter into a city. And the the coming of the king into the city from the time he entered the city gates to the t to uh, including all the time that he um, traveled from place to place to place and you know spoke to the people and gave addresses and you know town square and and public hall and all that stuff to the time he finally left the city gates all of that the entire um, itinerary was described as the parousia the presence of the king. In other words, it's the description of the king being in this city, not necessarily only the arrival of the king at the city gates exclusively. So using that Greek concept of parousia, the Bible is going to begin to describe what we might call the coming of the Lord, right? The return of the Messiah, 
the, the return of the king to planet Earth. We know he left Earth in the book of Acts, chapter 1, right? Got caught up in the clouds and, and went up into the heavens, and yet he's going to return. And the return of the king, Messiah, is described as the parousia. But what we're going to see is that the initiation of this parousia begins with what's known as the resurrection or the rapture. The coming of the Lord into the airspace over planet Earth begins or initiates the parousia of the bodily Messiah returning to Earth. Although his feet don't touch the ground in the rapture passages, we meet him in the air as believers. Nevertheless, that's not the only verse that talks about his coming. Ultimately, it will culminate in what we call the second coming of Messiah, where he will come back to earth bodily. And this time, he'll, his feet will touch the ground, like the Zechariah 14 passages. And in so doing, he will begin to um, go around uh, the Middle East there, Jerusalem, uh, campaigning, doing certain things that uh, we'll, we'll be reading about later on, culminating in ushering in the physical millennial kingdom uh, that I believe is going to take place on planet Earth. Right. So that's, but the point I'm bringing up is that the, this parousia, this presence of the Lord begins not now. We're not in the parousia now, even though the spiritual presence of the Lord is here on, on planet Earth. The parousia begins with the bodily return of Yeshua into the airspace over planet Earth to initiate the rapture slash resurrection. Uh, that's the beginning of the parousia. And so Matthew's going to start building this context. And we'll start reading about this through Thessalonians as well. You can see the context of the parousia, uh, moving down to surviving believers delivered. That's the rapture. Initiation of the parousia, the universal perception. I'm sorry, that's not the, the, the rapture just yet. Um, surviving believer, believers uh, delivered. Uh, those themes don't necessarily have to involve the... Um, uh, uh, the rapture just yet. Initiation, in other words, you can be delivered from destruction that's, that has nothing to do with being raptured. That's the point I'm trying to make. Initiation of the parousia, that's moving closer towards what we might call rapture. Universal perceptions, Jesus with the clouds, angelic presence, trumpet call, and gathering. So the whole context of parousia, again, the beginning of the parousia is this idea that the body of Messiah, who remember he's got a resurrected body now, he's going to come begin his his um, return to planet Earth by meeting us in the clouds first. Now, whether we go up and directly straight back down again, that's open for for debate. I know some believers who believe that we're going to go up and then we're going to come straight back down right immediately. I don't believe that's going to be the case. Um, I believe we're going to go up, go up into heaven. There's going to be um, two significant things that take place up in heaven at that time: um, bema seat judgment and um, uh, the wedding feast uh, that takes place up there. And then when we come back down uh, with Messiah uh, during uh, the battles of Armageddon, uh, riding horses with him, ride horses, then we'll begin to um, uh, step, uh, uh, set up the Millennial Kingdom. We'll talk about all those details later, but let, let's jump through some of these New Testament prophecies now. Um, Matthew uh, 13 is a parable of the sower, where Yeshua talks about the kingdom of God is like... Um, a uh, uh, one who sows um, good and bad seed. Well, he doesn't sow the bad seed. Let me just let Yeshua say it. Starting in verse 3. He told them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. So, um, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road. Birds came there, uh, birds ate, ate them up. Others fell in rocky places where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up immediately because they had no depth of soil. So we know that there's this story of a sower sowing seed, and it falls on different ground, and based on which ground it falls on, it has different results. And so 
Um, some falls, fall on good ground, some falls on thorny grounds, and on, some on good soil, some on bad soil, blah, blah, blah. We know this story. And we also know that it has a general application in terms of salvation at any given age, at any given age to any individual. It doesn't necessarily uh, have to be Israel. It can be anyone from the Gentile surrounding nations that is represented by the sower and the seeds falling on the, 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 the soils of their heart, right? We know that to be true. There's a general uh, application. But notice when Yeshua gives the explanation down in verse, starting in verse 18, he gives it a decidedly eschatological application. Listen then to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one sown with seed beside the road, right? He starts talking about the the the, the general application first, right? M- meaning it can happen. It could happen in Yeshua's day. It could happen any time after that. It could happen. It could have happened before then when we're hearing about um uh the truth of God. Even back in the time of Israel, you know when when salvation was still possible as long as you had a good heart and were open to hearing the good news about Israel's God. So this the application is still general, but notice that when um when Yeshua turns this parable towards the wheat, uh this the weeds among the wheat, it's a similar parable. Jesus presented another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven, right, still the kingdom of heaven, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Notice it's similar to the parable of the sower. We're talking about a man and uh, sowing a different seed into the ground. And again, uh, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. Now he's getting a little bit different with this parable. It could still be applied in any given age, right? The evil one still sows um, weeds among the wheat that the good man sowed. It's still applicable in any age possible. But notice, notice when we drop down to the... Um, uh, the uh, weeds explain, starting in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Notice his decidedly eschatological facing or end times facing explanation. He said, starting in verse 37, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, i.e., Yeshua, and the field is the world. And as for the one who, I'm sorry, as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So notice the end time language. Now, why am I bringing this passage up? Right? He talks about, in verse 40, how the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father, the one who has ears, let him hear. Why am I bringing this passage up? It's because of the end-time language that we're going to be reading about as we pour through these passages that we've already been prepped for by the Tanakh passages. God has judgment and for the unrighteous, including his own people. He, he allows them to go into punishment, exile, destruction, city is destroyed, temples destroyed, etc., etc., but only those people who find themselves in favor with God repent and are part of the remnant are restored unto righteousness. The wicked are judged and sent off into destruction. It's a similar theme here in these passages. And this time, the the scope of the parable 
is bigger than Israel. It's more a universal aspect, right? International covers covers all people groups. And so it becomes necessary for us to see that Yeshua is beginning to explain things to people that are that Israelites are privy to, right? He's speaking to, to Israelites at the time, and yet the application is now universal in scope because this gospel message, the book of Matthew and, and following, have gone around the world, and now all people groups can read these parables and begin to realize, where do I fit into this parable? Where do I fit in? Am I part of the good seed? Am I part of the kingdom of righteousness? Am I going to be, am I going to be um, rescued by God and um, brought into his kingdom? Am I part of the righteous? Or am I a part of the wicked kingdom that was sown by the adversary and am i going to go off into destruction and the choice is before all humans so with that theme in mind let's jump over quickly to the book of romans i wish i had time to read the entire romans chapter one but um we can see even just from the headings that paul talks about the gospel first and then he drops all the way down into starting in verse 18 it says the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against who God's people? No. The theme is that the wrath of God is is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is not just Israel who suffers this particular judgment or wrath, but it's for anyone who is falls under the category of ungodly and unrighteous. So, on the broader scope, it is God's people who are preserved from wrath. But on an individual level, then it's anyone who's unrighteous. So corporately, um, we can see that uh, unrighteousness must be judged. Ungodliness must be judged. But individually, um, if you place your faith in the Messiah, it doesn't matter whether you're part of Israel or part of the surrounding nations, you can be rescued and saved from that wrath. That's a theme that's going to be developed. It's, we've, already, we've already seen it in the Old Testament, but now we're going to be uh, focusing more sharply as we read these apostolic scriptures passages. So when you have some time, do your homework this week. Read Romans chapter one, start in verse thirteen, verse eighteen, and read through the end of the chapter. And notice the judgment that God has leveled against the entire of hum- the entirety of humanity because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry, because of their playing with unrighteousness, because of their cruelty to other humans, because of their um, their penchant lust for greed and uh, uh, um, uh, hedonism and and all of the unnatural relationships that they have, uh, you know the 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 whole um, LGBTQ um, culture is judged because of the lifestyle that they lead, uh, and we see that here in these verses, the unnatural relations that men have with men, women have with women, shameful acts, all of these things are going to be judged by God because it is not part of God's ways. It's contrary to God's ways. So this is judgment against the wickedness of man. This is personified by the systems that are labeled Babylon in the Bible, ultimately by the city of Babylon that's going to rise up in the end days, whether it's literal Babylon city or a city that has the earmarks of Babylon, such as either Jerusalem playing the harlot at the time, or maybe another wicked city at the time, could be New York, could be Las Vegas, could be Tel Aviv, could be uh, 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 London, you know, could be any wicked city in the world that at the time is not um, playing by God's ways, not playing by God's rules, not doing things God's way. Um, but ultimately, we're talking about a physical city. So, um, 
read through those passages on your own. I'm kind of hurrying through a bit of this because it's most of it's very um, familiar to the folks in the church crowd. Some people are writing into me and they're saying, Ariel, when are you going to get to the church stuff, right? You've been reading all these Old Testament passages about Israel, and that's fine and well for Jews, but when are you going to get to the church stuff? Well, guess what? I'm already into the church stuff right now, so pay attention. Moving quickly into um, 2 Thessalonians, we begin to continue to read about these themes known as the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord, as God begins to tell the church now, right? People reading the Old Te- the New Testament, typically Christians in the church. Uh, here, here's, a, here's a spoiler for you, right? Spoiler alert. Most people in national Israel, most rabbinic Jews, are not reading the New Testament. Yeah, spoiler alert. Okay, yeah, most of you already knew that. But read through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, right? Very short letters. But the coming of the day of the Lord and the judgment that's described here uh, is is um, language that we as Christians need to be very take very seriously. Not just because we think we're going to be exempt from all that, right, and it's going to pass over us because we're going to be raptured out of it, but because if it weren't relevant for us, then Paul wouldn't follow up the day of the Lord language with Christian conduct. We ask you, brothers, starting verse 12, and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly and encourage the unfaith, un, the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Um, the conduct that we should be leading as believers is one of expectancy and waiting for our Lord to return and rescue us. Yes, but what if we have to go through persecution? As a group, we should be um, aware of the weaknesses in the group, and we need to pray for one another and build one another up and encourage people. But we need to admonish the unruly and encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Not everyone has the strength to say, oh yeah, we're going to be rescued out of all this. There are a lot of people in the church who are fearful. So um, we need to have this kind of uh, corporate mindset. Don't have this just individual, well, I'm going to be okay. Right, I'm going to make it through. I don't have to worry about myself. Uh, I'm going to be raptured. I'm fine. I know I'm a believer. What about the rest of the people in your church? There are a lot of people who are in uh, in uncertainty mode. So read through those passages and uh, pray about how you can what what is going to be your role during the end times. What where will you be during these last and, and wicked days when when troubling times are upon us? As we begin to um, draw this study to a close, we see in Second Peter we also have the um, coming day of the Lord. Second Peter talks, in fact, the heading in your Bible is the coming day of the Lord, starting verse three. Know this first and of all that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Now there's a partial fulfillment going on already because in uh, Peter's day, we already had this language known as the last days. When you read through the New Testament, you'll find that the last days already applies to the age that was initiated by Messiah at his first coming. The last days was initiated by the coming of Messiah at the first time, when, his, when he came and died on the cross and then resurrected and went, went to, to uh, sit at the right hand of the Father. That initiated the last days. So we're already living in the last days. We've been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years. It's a long last days. On the one hand, the expectancy from the first century was that the last days would be kind of short. And therefore, the, the sense of urgency that we find in these letters, like we read about in Second Peter, is that because of the coming of the day of the Lord, which could be right around the corner, that was their kind of expectancy aspect. Um, because of this coming of the day of the Lord, which from their aspect was was very near, they didn't realize there was this 2,000-year gap. At least I don't believe they realized it. They thought it was going to happen very, very soon. 
they have this very uh, heightened sense of urgency to live holy lives and be prepared for the persecution that might be coming. But the point I'm trying to highlight is that they were aware of a coming persecution. Um, there will be uh, um, those who mock the coming of Messiah, right? And in this aspect, this applies in every age ever since Yeshua came. Because uh, uh, Peter says um, in verse 4, people will mock and say, where's the promise of, the com- of his coming? For ever since the Father fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, Jesus is dilly-dallying. He's delaying. He's not coming, right? Um, they, there's not any second coming. And so we had sc- scoffers and mockers and and um, those who doubt and disbelieve that Jesus is going to return because he said he was going to return. But Peter's saying, make no mistake, the day of the Lord will come, meaning the door, the Lord will return. The day of the day of the Lord. I'm not. I haven't developed this theme just yet for a reason. But the day of the Lord has two dual themes to it as well, back to back. In one aspect, the day of the Lord describes the positive aspect of the Lord rescuing us and returning to gather his us unto Himself. That's the good part of the day of the Lord that we should be looking forward to. But on the flip side of that coin, called the day of the Lord, there's this negative aspect, the dreadful day of the Lord. Um, where it's the punishment against the unwicked, the punishment against the wicked, the punishment against the unrighteous. I could just made up a word there, the unwicked. All right, so read those passages on your own. Um, uh, the day of the Lord is signaled by all these distresses and and um, uh, uh, cosmic disturbances, and um, uh, uh, the day of the Lord is going to happen. But notice. That, and I'll close with this. Second Peter describes the day of the Lord ushering in a new heaven and a new earth. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away. He's talking about this current age coming to an end, right? Hasn't come to an end yet. So if you're a full-blown preterist, what do you do with these verses where it says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away, right? Didn't happen in the first century, at least not literally. The heavens didn't pass away. And the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth and its work will be discovered. As far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. Didn't happen in 780, didn't happen in 130s, when the uh, final Jewish revolts ran their full course. At least I haven't seen it happen yet. Last time I checked, the heavens and the earth are still here, so they haven't passed away. So full predators have a problem with this. At least I, I perceive that they do. I know, I know, they have some way to work around it, but you know what I'm saying. Partial predators seem to allow for... Well, it was partially fulfilled in the first century, but a lot of it's going to happen in the future. Okay, meaning they have a little bit of a futurist. I think the best perspective is to understand that there are near and far aspects, now and not yet. Yes, judgment did take place 2,000 years ago in that part of the world, but there's going to be a coming day when the judgment is more universal. That's why Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief of the Lord in which... Uh, come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away, not just the air around Jerusalem or not just the earth around Jerusalem or something like that. He's talking about the universal destruction and uh, and shaking and breaking apart of all things on planet earth one day. So read those um, uh, passages and pray about how can I be better prepared for this? Let me just give you the spoiler up front again and then I'll close. The only way you can truly be prepared for what's going to take place on planet Earth someday is to place your trust in Yeshua. That's it. That is the only way that you are guaranteed to make it through. And when I say through, you might be you might be martyred. That's 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 one way of making it through, right? They can take your life, but they can't take your soul. Because if your soul belongs to God, because you've named the name of Messiah, 
then it doesn't matter if the body perishes because you will be resurrected one day. So Yeshua is the only way. Jesus is the only way to make it through. Just decide within yourself now, while you have time, that Jesus is the answer. He is the only answer, the only exclusive solution. You cannot trust in your riches, your your position, your power, your prestige, your ethnicity, your family uh, upbringing, uh, your religious affiliation. None of that is going to matter in the end, when all of this comes down, only your faith in Yeshua is what's going to save you. So with that, we'll draw this part of our study to a close, and uh, that'll do it for Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End-Time Events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture to your congregation, Kehila the Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ari Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes or so and talk about this particular topic. You can see on my screen, I've got pulled up biblical Unitarianism's website, where we've been... Um, borrowing their references to Trinitarian passages that they feel aren't really Trinitarian. And so we left off last week by looking at um, uh, Genesis 16, 7 through 13 with the angel Lord and Hagar. We're now ready to turn to Genesis 18, 1 and 2 and talk about Abraham's dealing with God at the uh, at his tent. This is an angel of the Lord language. This is um, language that um, is decidedly slightly different than that. So let's begin to read 
biblical Unitarianism's explanation first. I'll read through it nonstop, and then I'll turn to my own explanations. This might run over into two weeks as well, just like we did for the previous verse. I don't want to rush it. I could possibly do it in one week, but then you might not get the gist of what I'm trying to say if I go too fast. So if I go into two weeks, that's just the way it works. Besides, it takes a little while to read theirs explanation first. So let me read theirs first, and then um, we'll go back and... Um, I'll provide my own um, answer to their answer. All right. Biblical Unitarianism has this to say about Genesis uh, 18, starting in verse 1. They, they have a few verses for quoting. Verse 1, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Verse 2, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he heard from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Genesis 18, 1-2 NIV. All right, let's read their explanation. They got four points to make um, in their refutation of Trinitarian theology. Remember, in case you didn't remember, in case you forgot, um, <clears throat> biblical Unitarianism holds a view of God that is anti-Trinitarian or non-Trinitarian. They believe that there's God. They believe there's the Son. They believe there's the Spirit. But the Father is the only God, the Son is a human being, and the Spirit is either A, another way of describing God, or B, the um, presence of God among humans. In other words, his, his influence among us, but not necessarily a third person of the Trinity. So that's their perspective of the three persons that Trinitarians call God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Biblical Unitarians say no. It's just God who is the only true God. Jesus is a man. He's glorified by God, and he's given the preeminence by God in the certain terms of salvation, but he's not co-creator or anything such such as such as you might read about. And the Spirit, well, he's just he's just God in different in a different na name. Or when we're talking about humans, he's the influence that God um, gives to humans. He's the um, inspiration. He's the gift that God grants to humans to partake of His Holy Spirit. All right. That being said, let's read Biblical Unitarians' answer. Number one, point number one. These verses pose a problem for Christians who have been taught that no one has ever seen God. The Hebrew text clearly says that Yahweh appeared to Abraham in the form of a man, and he was with two angels who also took on human appearance. This is not a problem. God created mankind so he could intimately fellowship with us. It is reasonable that he would occasionally become visible and take on human form to be intimate with his creation. In fact, Scripture records a number of people who, to whom God appeared, and then they list these uh, individuals and references. They've got Adam and Eve, right? They heard his footsteps in Genesis. Abraham um, in Genesis. Jacob in Genesis. Moses and the elders of Israel in Exodus. Samuel in 1 Samuel. Solomon twice in 1 Kings. Micah, or Micaiah in 1 Kings. Isaiah in Isaiah. Uh, Ezekiel in Ezekiel, Daniel in Daniel, Amos in Amos, Stephen in the book of Acts, and the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. So these are all the people that either interacted with God or there was some kind of anthropomorphic language that suggested that they could perceive God, like it talked about God's God walked or God talked or they heard his footsteps or um, God stood. It uses language that otherwise when we perceive that we understand that God is a spirit shouldn't be used unless we're just talking anthropomorphically, meaning we're ascribing human um, language to an otherwise spirit, or we're talking about some form of theophany where God manifests himself in visible fashion so that the humans can interact with God. That's, that's what they're describing there. So, point number two out of four, 
Biblical Unitarianism continues, a study of Genesis 18.1 and Christian commentaries reveals that most theologians do not believe that Yahweh can appear in the form of a man. This is their um, uh, research. Before we examine why we say that, we must remember that difficult to believe it or not, that is exactly what the text says. Many theologians who do not believe that the text can be literal have postulated other explanations. The standard explanation of the verses are, it was actually a dream and not real, or it was the pre-incarnate Christ who appeared, or it was an angel that appeared carrying the name of Yahweh. Now, again, we're talking about Genesis 18.1. We're not talking about an angel of the Lord per se. We're talking about God shows up, talks with Abraham. There are three men. They dialogue, and one of them clearly is Yahweh God, right? And we're going to see this when we look at the text, either tonight or in the weeks to follow. But... Biblical Unitarianism continues in point number two. Some theologians teach that the record of Genesis 18 and following was a dream because of the circumstances, i.e. it was the heat of the day and the time for naps. I might interject. The rabbis say that it was also kind of a dream state because Abraham had just become circumcised in Genesis chapter 17. And because of the the, um, the euphoria brought on by the pain of circumcision uh, without, um, um, you know, without drugs to numb the pain, etc., um, painkillers, then uh, by the time we get chapter chapter 18, Abraham is essentially swooning from the pain, and then God and the, and the angels show up, and that's kind of what's going on with him. That's the rabbinic answer. Some of them say it was a dream, but some of them say that um, it was because of the pain of circumcision, That's and he's healing. All right, um, uh, biblical Unitarianism continues. However, the Bible never says it was a dream, and there certainly was no time when Abraham quote-unquote woke up. The record of Sodom and Gomorrah is certainly not a dream. The angels left Abraham and went to the city of Sodom where they rescued Lot and his daughters from God's judgment. There's just no solid scriptural evidence that Yahweh's appearance was a dream. Neither would this account for the many other times Yahweh appears. Right? So they've got some good points that they're bringing up. Uh, I might add most of the points are valid so far. Let's keep reading. Many Trinitarian theologians say that Genesis 18.1 is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Here's where, of course, I'm going to um, uh, diverge or reject their explanation or differ with them. The evidence they give for their, their conclusions, we Trinitarians, is twofold. Yahweh is invisible and no one can see him, so it cannot be he. And the record clearly says it is Yahweh, so it must be the pre-incarnate Christ, since, quote-unquote, Christ is a member of the Godhead, end quote. However, Biblical Unitarianism says, if it could be shown that Yahweh does indeed occasionally appear in the form of a man, then there would be no reason not to take the Bible literally. Furthermore, the fact that Scripture never says that the one appearing is Christ is strong evidence that this is not Christ. They continue, and there are at least two occasions where Yahweh and Christ appear together, Daniel 7 and Revelation 5. They're gonna, we're going to look at both of those tonight, by the way. This seems to... Uh, this seems to force us. This seems to us to force the conclusions that Yahweh cannot be Christ. All right. Uh, they continue on number, point number two. The major reason to make the Yahweh of this record into an angel is the same as the reason to make the record of a dream or to make Yahweh into the pre-incarnate Christ. It comes from the preconceived idea that Yahweh just cannot appear in human form. This is biblical Unitarianism's answer. So I'm just reading nonstop. Therefore, they say, the temptation here is to make Yahweh of necessity a dream, an angel, or Christ. 
Even though in other records angels are called God, they say, this record is different. We have seen from other verses that angels are occasionally called God. See the notes on Genesis 16, 7-13. We talked about that for the last few weeks. However, they say, a study of the records where the angel of the Lord is called God shows that he was always clearly identified as an angel, and it was clear that he was bringing a message from God. This record and the others mentioned above, in which Yahweh appears, are decidedly different. The man, quote-unquote, identified as Yahweh is among two other angels, i.e. they are not explicitly called angels until Genesis 19, or they just let you know. And the entire record identifies him as Yahweh. And while other records, this is biblical Unitarianism's answer, and while other records show the angel of the Lord actually, I'm sorry, the angel of the Lord carefully avoiding the use of the first person, I, me, and my, referring to God, the Yahweh, referring to God, the quote-unquote Yahweh in this record uses the first person over and over. All right, let's keep reading biblical Unitarian's answer, point number three of four points. Most Christians have not been taught that God can appear in a form resembling a person. They've always heard, no one has seen God at any time, end quote, quote unquote. That's what most Christians are taught. In the book, Don't Blame God, the language of that phrase is examined and explained. John 1, 17 through 18 states, quote, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, dot, dot, dot. Now, here's biblical Unitarianism's um, review of that particular quote from the book. Please note that truth in its fullness came not with Moses, but with Jesus Christ. It was he who, for the first time in history, made God truly understandable. It is not that the Old Testament believers knew nothing of God, but rather that their knowledge and understanding of him were quite limited, i.e. veiled. They continue, since truth came by Jesus Christ, in other words, they quote, for the law was given through Moses' grace, and truth came through Jesus, end quote. Uh, since this came through Jesus Christ, we believe, they say, that the first part of John 1.18, quote, no man hath seen God at any time, end quote, it means that no man had, quote, known, end quote, God as he truly is at any previous time. So they're defining the word seen, right? No man has seen God at any time. They're defining that as known God. It is Jesus Christ who reveals or makes known God to man. Now listen to them draw this out and tease this out. I actually agree with the 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 the, the basic premise of their draw out concept of knowing God and seeing God here. So listen very carefully because this is actually very important. I, I disagree with their 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 final conclusion on the matter, but parts of their explanation are actually very sound doctrine. Uh, in many languages, listen to their explanation. In many languages, to see is a common idiom for to know. Right, so the use of the word "see," like we the, the 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 verb we apply to what happens with our vision and our eyes, but it's an idiom for knowing. Listen to what they have to say. In the Hebrew language, one of the definitions for "see," the Hebrew "ra'ah," is "see so as to learn or to know." That's a, a a dictionary definition that you can look up, like your Strong's Concordance or something like that. Similarly, the Greek word translated see in verse 18, horao, can be, quote, to see with the eyes, end quote, or, quote, to see with the mind, to perceive, to know, end quote. I fact-checked this, and they are, they're correct. This is, this is true. All right, let's keep reading. Their answer. Even in English, one of the definitions for, quote, to see, end quote, is, quote, to know or understand, end quote. For example, they give, when two people are discussing something, one might say to the other, quote, I see where you, I see what you mean. When 
end quote. I see what you mean, when really what they're trying to say is, I understand you. All right. They continue. The usage of, of see as it pertains to knowing is found in many places in the New Testament. Jesus said to Philip, quote, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. Here again, the word see is used to indicate knowing. Anyone who knew Christ, not just those who saw him, would know the Father. In fact, Christ had made that plain two verses earlier when he said to Philip, quote, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well, John 14, 7. All right, they continue. Further evidence that see means know in John 1.18 is that the phrase, quote, no man has seen God, end quote, is contrasted in that verse with the phrase, quote, has made him known, end quote. All right, go back and read John 1.18 all over again. The verse is not talking about seeing God with one's eyes, quote unquote. It is saying that the truth about God came by Jesus Christ. They continue, before Jesus Christ came, no one really knew God as he truly is, a loving Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ made that known in its fullness. Our study has led us to conclude that verses seeming to say that no one has ever quote-unquote seen God, end quote, are either using the word seen as meaning to know, quote-unquote, and thus referring to knowing him fully, or they were referring to seeing him in all his fullness as God, which would be impossible. They continue. We agree with the text note on John 1.18 in the NIV Study Bible, which says, quote, and here's a, here's a quote from the NIV Study Bible, quote, Since no human being can see God as he really is, those who saw God saw him in a form he took on himself temporarily for the occasion, end quote. All right, they continue. Another point should be made about the word seen in John 1.18. If Trinitarians are correct in that Jesus is God incarnate, God the Son, and fully God, those are all in quotes, by the way, then it seems to us that they would see that they would be anxious to realize that, quote, seen means, quote, no, end quote, because it makes no sense to say that no man has seen God with his eyes and then say Jesus is God, right? In other words, logic is that lots of people saw Jesus, and therefore, if Jesus is God, then we're really saying that, G that lots of people saw God. Theologians on both sides of the Trinitarian debate should realize the idiom of seeing, quote-unquote, meaning known, quote-unquote, in John 1.18. All right, so they got some good logic to apply there, which is very uh, appropriate. Uh, they continue, the Bible also calls God the invisible God, quote-unquote, right? That's a quote from the Bible. We, we have verses that we're going to look at here. Uh, they continue, this is true and God's natural state is invisible to us, right? God is pure spirit. However, that does not prevent him from occasionally becoming visible. Angels and demons are also naturally invisible, but they can and do become visible at certain times. If angels and demons can sometimes become visible, then God can certainly too, right? I mean, he's more powerful than angels and demons, obviously. That's my own interjection. They continue, we remind the reader that the Bible plainly says, quote, Yahweh appeared to Abraham, end quote, and to others as well. It is often stated that the, that the people could not have really seen Yahweh because a person will die if he sees God. This is biblical Unitarianism speaking. The, uh, this idea comes mainly from the conversation Moses had with God. Moses asked to see the glory of God, and God responded, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. That's a quote from Exodus 33.20. Continuing along with uh, Biblical Unitarianism, it is clear from the context that the face of God was the glory of God because that is what Moses asked to see. We would concur that the human beings are not equipped, that human beings are not equipped to comprehend God in all his fullness and exposure to all that God is would be lethal, 
which I agree with, by the way. Uh, they continue, however, we know that God did create mankind so he could fellowship with us, and we assert that the human-like form that he has sometimes assumed in order to be near us is not his fullness in any way. And then they uh, continue. There are two records very important to the subject because they describe God and show Jesus Christ and also show Jesus Christ with them. So listen up. They're going to bring in the Daniel and the Revelation passage. And they're going to talk about how that Daniel sees God and, and Messiah. And then John sees God and the Messiah or Messiah type um, uh, uh, symbol. And the fact that they're both together in the same room means that they can't be the same God. All right. So listen up. There are two records that are very important to the subject because they describe God and also show Jesus with them. This first is a revelation vision. I'm sorry. The first is a revelation vision of the future that Daniel the prophet had. So let's read Daniel 7, 9, 10, and 13 through 14. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set. This is Daniel. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Verse 10. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Verse 13. This is still Daniel's vision. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the angel of days and was led into his presence. And then verse 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. End quote. So that's Daniel. Now here's Biblical Unitarian's next explanation. The Ancient of Days is Yahweh. Note his description as a man. Into his presence come, comes, quote, a son of man, end quote, who's given authority and dominion. It's quite universally agreed among Christians that the Ancient of Days, quote-unquote, is God the Father, and the Son of Man, quote-unquote, is Jesus Christ, who receives his authority from God. Note that in this passage, there's no hint of the Trinity. There's no Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, and no indication that the Son of Man, quote-unquote, is co-equal or co-eternal with the Father. On the contrary, Biblical Unitarianism says, while God is called the Ancient of Days, right, in quotes, because it's lifted from the Bible, a title befitting his eternal nature, Christ is called, in quotes, a Son of Man, in quote, right, again, lifted from the Bible, meaning one who is born from human parents, which is, as I interject, the Hebrew Ben Adam, or, or uh, uh, Bar Enosh in the, in the Aramaic, if I remember from memory, but Ben Adam in the Hebrew, um, that literally means son of man, but it means human being. Son of man is a, a an idiomatic phrase in the Hebrew and in the Aramaic for human being. So I understand, I, I agree with that. It's the befitting of his eternal nature because Christ is called uh, son of man, meaning one who's born of human parents. That's 100% accurate. All right, uh, biblical Unitarianism continues under point three of four points. This prophecy is one of many that shaped the Jewish people about their Messiah. And that is this. He was not foretold as God in the flesh, but rather a man like themselves who would, who would receive special honor and authority from God. For our purposes in understanding Genesis 1.18, these verses in Daniel demonstrate very clearly that God can and does appear in human form. And because in Daniel's vision he is with the Messiah when he does so, there's no reason to assume that the other times he appears, it is actually Jesus Christ. In other very clear record, the other very clear record is Revelation 4 through 5. The length of the record prohibits us from printing it here, but the reader is encouraged to read these two chapters. 
those two chapters, and then they give you kind of a summary. They portray God sitting on the throne, surrounded by elders and creatures who repeat, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and quote. God is holding in his right hand a scroll that is written on both sides, but sealed shut with seven seals. An angel calls out to summon those who could open the scroll, but no one was worthy. They continue in their um, summary of, of Revelation 4 and 5. As John began to weep, an angel comforted him with the words, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. Then a lamb, the context makes it clear, is, is Jesus Christ, they, they mention, came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Uh, end quote. At that point, they let you know, the creatures and the elders fell down before the lamb and started singing a new song. So they remind us, this is biblical Unitarianism. The record is clear. God is described as sitting on a throne and even holding in his hand a scroll that Jesus comes and takes from him. This record again shows that God can and does occasionally take on human form so that we can better identify with him. And then point number four of the four points, and it's the last one, it's very short. This record and the others like it show how a glimpse of what Christians have to look forward to. God loves us and created us to have a deep and abiding relationship with him. He will not always remain as distant as he now sometimes seems. The Bible tells of a time when, quote, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, end quote. And that's taken from Revelation 21, verse 3. And that is the end of their explanation on uh, Genesis 18, 1 and 2, where God comes and visits uh, Abraham. Now, um, we've got just a little bit of time. I'm going to whet your appetite. I will definitely spill this over into next week and maybe even a week after. But as I begin to turn from biblical Unitarianism's explanation and begin to look at my own um, um, viewpoints, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to jump into Genesis 18 and start looking at uh, some key uh, details from the English that were carried over from the Hebrew. And so we'll just whet your appetite with this. When we get to um, uh, Genesis 18, we're going to notice that it is the Lord, Y-H-V-H, the Tetragrammaton name, as you can see right there on your screen. Um, The Lord, that's uh, typified by your English as capital L-O-R-D. The Lord is the one who dialogues with uh, Abraham in this chapter, but the Hebrew also um, has uh, Elohim. Let me scroll down a bit. Let me see. When it talks about, uh, let's see. Um... I know from reading through the uh, Hebrew or earlier this week that the word Elohim sh- shows up, but we'll look at that a different uh, next week. I'm just giving you kind of an overview of where we're going to go, and then I'll uh, draw this part of our study to a close. We'll make it a kind of a, a, a shorter um, uh, segment too tonight. Um, we're going to look at the Strong's Concordance for the Hebrew word for see, right? When we talk about seeing God, and Abraham saw God or saw Yahweh, uh, was it? see as in to know or perceive, or was it see with the eyes? What does the Hebrew uh, um, lexicon have to say about that? We'll look at that Hebrew word ra'ah in time. We're also going to turn to the um, Greek rendering to glean some nuggets from there. I've got a a greekdoc.com website pulled up that allows me to see both the Hebrew and the Greek, meaning the Septuagint, as rendered in two different versions, the um, Alexandrinus as well as the Vaticanus versions of the um, Septuagint, as you can see on your um, screen right now, we got the uh, uh, 
Alexandrinus on the left side and the Vaticanus over on the right side there. And so we will in time look at those um, passages. I won't read the whole passages, but we'll we'll definitely look at the uh, the Greek word for see or appeared as it's rendered by the translation in the English you can see on the bottom of your screen there. And uh, so we'll look at that that uh, Greek word in time because that's going to carry over into our New Testament um, lookups and references, cross references of uh, people seeing God. The Greek of the New Testament may or may not differ from the Greek rendering from the Old Testament. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but it helps us uh, in our uh, uh, structural analysis. We are eventually going to turn to um, Exodus chapter 3 and look at how um, Moses interacted with a theophany known as the angel of the Lord uh, and and compare and draw notes and contrast from Abraham's interaction with this theophany uh, that was God, um, Yahweh, and draw some comparisons and notice um, some um, details that are uh, relevant for us as we interact with both of these gentlemen who interact with God. Uh, won't be a full exegetical look because uh, eventually we'll probably get to that in our studies themselves. Um, we're also going to turn to Exodus 24, um, where, let's see, let me turn to it. I lost my... Um, there we go. My bookmark here. In Exodus 24, we'll see that Moses... Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up and see God. So, go up to the mount and see God. And we'll talk about uh, what it means there as well. We'll look at the verbs, seeing God. We'll look at the, uh, the details. Try to ascertain, is this a vision? Is it, um, is it just that they're knowing God? So we're working from the um, kind of the premise that um, uh, biblical Unitarianism kind of set forth that seeing God is really knowing God and or just seeing God, but not necessarily seeing a pre-incarnate uh, figure known as Jesus. Right? We're gonna kind of we're gonna test their theory out. Uh, we'll look at Exodus 33, where Moses also asked to see God uh, and uh, to see His glory. Uh, Show me your face. Um, you know, God says you you can't see my face and live. Uh, uh, that 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 passage there is in view there in Exodus 33. Then we're gonna jump all the way forward to Isaiah 6. And we're going to notice how the book of Isaiah describes a vision that Isaiah had. Um, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, but it's visionary language because um, he sees uh, the Lord, he sees um, his throne, he sees the seraphim. What what was he seeing? Was he really seeing God? Was it a vision? Um, and who was he seeing? Was he seeing God? Was he seeing uh, the angel of the Lord? Uh, what's going on? We're going to look at that in time because it bears relevance to this idea of seeing God. Remember, biblical Unitarianism says that Abraham saw God. He didn't see a pre-incarnate figure that we would later call uh, Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus. He actually saw God because God allowed himself to be seen. It was a mere, it was a, it was a simple, the, uh, simple in the sense that it's just, there's nothing more. We don't have, need to add to it, they say. It was simply a theophany where God manifested himself to look like a man. And why not? Because God's all-powerful. He can do that. He created man. He knows what man's made of. He can certainly manifest himself if he wants to. So they're simply saying that Abraham saw God, saw Yahweh, and there's no reason for us to say that he saw Yeshua. But we're going to begin to look at Isaiah 6. And this is going to become a relevant passage that we're uh, for, for our studies and a, and a reason that you'll see here in a moment. But 
eventually we're going we're to look through that Daniel passage. We'll look at some nuggets there. They already referenced it, but I want to look at some, some more nuggets on my own because they didn't reference any of the Hebrew or the Aramaic or the Greek, but I will do so when, we, when the time comes. We're going to turn to the book of John as well, and we're going to um, uh, look at that passage more closely that they reference. Um, no man has seen God. Uh, the verse that they looked at, let's see, where is it? Um, scroll down to it. I apologize. My, uh, there we go. It's verse 18. John 1, 18. No one has seen God at, at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Uh, we'll look at that as well. Um, we'll also turn over to John 1, 18 and look at different um, versions because they didn't bring this out, but I'm going to. The John 1, 18 passage uh, exists as a variant by two of the main manuscript families. I don't want to spoil it for you tonight, but if you have a KJV rendering of the Bible, it's going to be drastically different than if you have, say, an NASB or ESV version of the Bible uh, when it comes to this particular passage. And so we'll look at those. Uh, the reason why those variations are important. We'll look at the different Greek texts, as you can see on my screen right now. We'll look at about, I think, 12 different. I'm not going to read all of the Greek texts, but I'll just highlight where those differences are and why they're relevant for this discussion eventually. We'll look at a textual analysis of each of those different Greek words, why that's relevant for our discussion in time. Um, we're also going to look at the Strong's Concordance number uh, of that Greek word to see uh, as pulled through the lens of the New Testament passages that use it, not just the the um, Septuagint passages that use that same uh, Greek word, right, or a similar word, uh, but we'll get to that in time. Um, and then we will turn to John uh, 6, where there's a, um, a discussion from Yeshua, where he talks about, uh, let me turn to it here. Um, Yeshua's talking about believing in the Father and then believing in himself, and then Yeshua also utters the phrase, uh, let me find it here. Do not grumble. Yeshua utters the phrase in verse 46 of John 6, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who was from God. He has seen the Father. So he uses this phrase seeing again. But the context of that passage is extremely important and fascinating for us to um, look at. We'll get to that in time as well, probably next week. Then we're going to turn to John 12, and we're going to find that John 12 has a, um, has a uh, reference in it uh, that is very relevant to... Let me scroll down to it. Um, let's see, here we go, starting in verse 38. Uh, Yeshua is going to start talking about Isaiah, and that's going to take us back to the Isaiah 6 passage. But I don't want to spoil it for you now. Unless you want to read ahead on your own, read read John 12 on your own, and then go and read Isaiah 6 on your own and see if you catch it. But we'll get to it in time. It'll be very relevant for us in talking about seeing God. And then um, we'll turn to John uh, 14, where uh, Yeshua also talks about uh, seeing, I believe. Um, um, Thomas has this discussion with him, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, uh, and things like that. We'll talk about what this could mean in terms of is Yeshua just talking about knowing God or is he actually talking about seeing God, right? Uh, and then eventually we'll, we'll also get to Colossians where Paul talks about how that Yeshua is the, let me scroll down to it, in verse 15, Yeshua is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
What does that mean? How does that factor into this discussion about seeing God, especially if Paul calls God the invisible God, and yet Yeshua is the image, the Greek word is icon, from where we get our English word icon. Yeshua is the icon of the invisible God. What does that mean? And how does it bear relevance to this discussion about Abraham seeing God in Genesis 18? And then um, in drawing our study to a close eventually, like I said, this will spill over into next week and possibly into the week after. I'm, I'm envisioning at least another two weeks. Um, 1 Timothy 6 uh, contains another reference where, as I scroll down to it, I apologize, before I blew up my screen, they can see it right now. The the the, the reference was right was parked where I needed to be, but when I hit um, when I uh, increased the uh, uh, font on my screen, uh, the bookmarking disappeared, and so now I have to scroll down to find where I was before. It's not like I wasn't uh, prepared earlier. It just well, ultimately I was unprepared, so I apologize. Um, I didn't anticipate that the blowing up would would uh, make my bookmarking stray, but um. Uh, 1 Timothy talks about how that God uh, dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. So we're going to eventually get that 1 Timothy 6.16 talk as a well-known passage and see how it bears relevance to what uh, biblical Unitarianism has to say as well as the idea of Abraham seeing um, uh, seeing uh, um, uh, God uh, in Genesis 18. And then lastly, we'll turn to 1 John 4. Um, where uh, John has this great discussion about knowing God and and God uh, making himself known to us. And yet in that same discussion, he talks about um, seeing God as well, which kind of goes back to what uh, um, uh, Biblical Unitarianism was highlighting about knowing God and seeing God and how those words play off of one another. So eventually, that's where we're going to go. I won't talk about that tonight because it would just take a whole another hour, and I, I'm trying to keep this part of the study short down to um, 30 minutes, or, or sometimes it goes over to 40 or 45 minutes. But for now, that's where we're going to go, so I hope you stick around next week and, and likely the two weeks after. So it'll take three weeks to go through Genesis 18 and talk about seeing God. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. And with that, let's close with a word of prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for sending your son and your spirit into the world so that I can have a right relationship with you. And so for that reason, Lord, I continue to make myself um, available to receive your words, to receive of your spirit, to study, to pour through the words of life that your word represents, um, to prepare myself uh, to be a witness to those around me, um, to prepare myself for um, the times that are coming on planet Earth that are sure to be very troublesome and trying. Uh, help me, Lord, to continue to uh, teach truth as I understand it. Hold me accountable for that which I study and and am um, responsible for, for giving as a Bible teacher. Uh, I know that there is a, a greater responsibility for those of us who call ourselves teachers. Uh, but thank you, Lord, for giving me insight to the texts. Um, it's like fire shut up in my bones, like the prophets say. Whenever I study and read, I can't help but want to share it with others uh, who might be blessed and, and, and built up by what I'm seeing, by what you're showing me. Not that I have all the answers, far from it. I thank you for um, the correction and the um, um, the uh, um, the continued progression of, of, of growth that represents uh, Bible study in my life over these last 
uh, 25 or 30 years that I've been more intensely studying your word. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share my thoughts with the students uh, via this mechanism of the internet, YouTube, iTunes, my website, my my newsletters, my um, um, blogs, and web, pod, uh, web pages and things like that, emails, uh, co- YouTube comments, all the ways in which I can interact with people. It's such a blessing. It's challenging at times, but it's a blessing. Thank you for uh, this opportunity. Continue to um, protect me and raise me up and provide for me, as well as those who uh, interact with me, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen.